Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Hey everyone and welcome to another episode of The Science of Sport. I'm Ross Tucker and I'm still in Paris. Tonight, of course, the opening match of the 2023 Rugby World Cup. The excitement is building. There are lots of people now walking around the streets wearing rugby jerseys, clearly here for the start of this tournament. And it kicks off tonight with what should be an absolutely spectacular match. I'm, I must say I'm most looking forward to hearing the French anthem with 80,000 people belting it out. One of the other things I've done while I was in Paris is bump into a friend of mine, a man who I've known for a decade, uh, who I hardly ever see. And the reason I hardly ever see him is because he's pretty much always on an adventure somewhere, usually a bicycle one. And that person is Ron Rutland. And I took an opportunity. He finished a ride from New Zealand all the way across to South America. He then went up the coast of South America and then into the United States, across the USA and across Europe to get here. And it's something that he's done, this is the fourth time he's done it, he's going to tell you the story about how all of this came about. And he finished in Paris yesterday, and I said, listen, can we please catch up over coffee and just chat? And I thought, let me record that conversation for a podcast. So this is a little bit different. It's not as technical or as scientific. Uh, sometimes it veers into philosophy. You'll hear stories about near-death experiences with mudslides, adopted dogs, uh, illness, Ron's battles with frostbite and weather conditions. It, re it really has been a remarkable life from a remarkable person. And I was very fortunate to sit down with him this morning and have this conversation. And so you're in effect eavesdropping on it. I'm saying that because you'll notice there's a little bit of background noise. We were in a hotel and there was, there was a little bit going on. At one point, one of Ron's fans came over to congratulate him. So that happened as well. So yeah, I hope you'll forgive that a little bit of interruption, a bit different. But I hope that you'll also enjoy it and take some insights from Ron's adventures. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite astonishing. There have been a few times in the last decade that I've looked at what he's done with a degree of envy and said, I wish I could join him for even three months of it. And he's done it for, well, 10 years, not uninterrupted. But you'll hear the story straight from him and hopefully enjoy learning about the man who cycled around the world. Enjoy it. So welcome to the Science of Sport. I'm just going to set the scene for you here. I'm sitting in a hotel lobby in Paris. Uh, what are we, a few hundred meters maybe from the Arc de Triomphe, which is appropriate. Also, as I walked from the metro station, I managed to catch one small peak at the top of the Eiffel Tower, which is also appropriate because those who've been to Paris would know that the top of the Eiffel Tower is a restaurant in it called, do you know? Oh, I don't. The, the Jules Verne restaurant. Oh, and Jules, Jules Verne was a writer who wrote the book Around the World in 80 Days, which told the story of Phileas Fogg. And the man sitting opposite the table to me in this hotel restaurant is the Phileas Fogg of cycling, who has gone <laughs> around the world, not in 80 days, but in four World Cup cycles. And that is Ron Rutland. Ron, 
Thank you very much for your time. No, Ross, absolute pleasure. <laughs> and it's a great thrill to be sitting here. I think we're waiting for a cup of coffee, so looking yeah, forward to that so arriving. That's good context. We, we've just ordered a cup of coffee each. We're in a fairly bustly hotel lobby, so this is think of this as eavesdropping on a conversation, and hopefully that'll allow you to forgive the noise and the background hum. Uh, but hopefully it'll be it'll be clear. So you're you're obviously a hard man to pin down because you said to me last night we had a function that you had spent how many nights sleeping in different places over, so, over the last ten years, which I guess is three thousand six hundred and fifty days approximately. Yeah. I've probably spent at least two thousand of those in diff- sleeping in different places. So that's probably the um, kind of sums up the last ten years of my life. So why? Why? Like, okay, by way of introduction, tell us why you are nomadic. What, what, what have you been doing for this 10 years? Okay, let's, so get, it, let's get the background let's up. Let's go back a little bit. So 2013, living in Cape oh, Town. Coffee's Cuff, arrived. Interruptions. Yes, thank you. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, no not at all. Cappuccino in the Americana? Cappuccino? Americana. Merci. Merci beaucoup. Thank you. It looks much better than normal French coffee does. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Very good. Um, no, so in 2013, yeah. sitting in Cape Town. Um, I'd spent wonderful five years there, um, running the Cape Town Tens. It's a rugby tournament I started there in 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, I moved to Cape Town from Hong Kong, where I was living at the time, or living before. And had never really done trail running or mountain biking. I kind of just got sucked into both of those. You were a rugby player? Yeah, so fat a ex-prop. Prop, right? Correct, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. All your mates were very quick to tell me that last night at the function. <laughs> yeah, were they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, uh, but I was an yeah, enthusiastic amateur at best, but uh, yeah, I played rugby sort of. Well, until 2013, mm-hmm. as it turns out. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, sort of, yeah, so I moved to Cape Town, got into a bit of trail running and mountain biking. Wasn't very good at either of them particularly, but sort of had a decent tractor or sort of diesel engine. Um, it was a great way to explore Cape Town, the city I hardly knew, the Western Cape. Um, and I'd always read these stories as a kid and as a, you know, as an adult about people doing crazy big adventures. So whether cycling around the world or overland from Cairo to Cape Town on a motorbike. Mm. I'd always read these stories and be like so inspired. Like, oh, it would be, wouldn't it be amazing to do something like that? But then the back, but the follow-on thought of my mind is, but obviously those people are, you know, more richer or you know, yeah. better athletes and all these other excuses. Just out of interest, though, had you done anything even at a tiny scale like it, or had you only just read it? Like, were you were you thinking about adventure as let me do more of something, or was it just this thing and you were going to go do a new? Yeah, now, were a, you imitating or were you just imagining? Is basically the point. That's a good. I'd read. I'd looked. So the first twenty-one years of my life were very unadventurous. I think as a fam, I grew up yeah. outside Durban. Uh, I think my entire first eighteen years of my life anywhere was probably within a fifty k radius. I think we had two or three family holidays down to like Mams and Toti. Uh, it was probably <laughs> as much as we travelled as a family. Uh, but after university, I actually got an opportunity to go play rugby in Australia for a season, um, and my plan was to go and play for six months save a bit of money, travel for six months, come back to South Africa and get on with my life. Mm. Um, but that was 12 years I was away. Um, and I tried, you know, I worked in different careers and different sort of businesses and I, I was, and I became very well traveled. And within that environment, you know, I did some short, I guess, adventurous trips. Mm. Like I would rent a motorbike, or buy a motorbike and go and travel through Laos or Vietnam for a couple of weeks here and there. Okay. But purely as holidays, I guess. Yeah, so yeah. adventurous holidays. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was, as a, but in terms of what I would consider a real big life-changing adventure, it was always just imagined, really. It was always like, you know, I was, it's just a sort of, yeah, just, it was something that was just completely out of my, 
but realm of possibility, or I believe is completely out the realm of possibility. And I think the key for me, after reading all these stories, was actually starting to meet some people that actually done some of these things. Mm. For me, that was a really important moment. There wasn't like a particular light bulb moment where I was saying, I'm going to sell everything, buy a bicycle and start to Africa. It was just this sort of drip feeding of like meeting people and going, you know what, if that person can do that, um, he's not that, that, I mean, not a greater athlete than me, yeah. or he's not, you know, he doesn't have a trust fund kid or something like that. Um, and I said, you know, that's com- complete BS that's, you know, that's, uh, mm. uh, you know, that I can't do this. And then, yeah, and then with that sort of realization in mind, and I'd never, you know, I probably spent three or four nights of my life in a tent before I left on my first trip. And that first trip, I imagine at the time, and this is about the time I met you, you would have had a few options in mind for what to do. Yeah. But the one you landed on, <laughs> tell yeah. us what, what eventually became journey number one. Yeah. So I was sitting, I pulled, literally bought a map of Africa, old school, old fashioned paper map. Yeah. And I plotted a route from Cape Town to Cairo. So it's a classic African overland trip. I think it's roughly 10,000 kilometers off the top of my head, mm-hmm. up roughly the east coast of Africa. It's pretty well documented. People do it on motorbikes, overland vehicles. Yeah, cyclists even. Cyclists. It's a, yeah. a Tour d'Afrique, which is the yeah. reverse. So Cairo to Cape Town, fully supported right, over yeah. like four yeah. months, I think. Paid ten or $15,000 and it's mm. great, you know, be a great adventure. So there's a lot of resources to lean on, into. And then I looked at this map of Africa and I looked at the country that I was missing and Uganda stands out. So I said, I've heard so much uh, about yeah, Uganda. Yeah. Yeah. So let me add Uganda into the route, which, you know, sort of means you head inland a little bit more west. And I thought, well, if I've got to go to Uganda, I might as well go to Burundi and Rwanda. Um, and then from there, I just sort of more out of curiosity than anything, I said, I wonder if it's possible to find a route that goes through every single country on mainland Africa. And uh, for those of you not from Africa, or even those from you, Africa, there's 48. Yeah. Um, it's a lot more than a lot of people think. Yeah. Um, and eventually I worked out that theoretically you can get from Cairo to Cape, sorry, Cape Town to Cairo, passing through every single all 48 mainland countries and, in Africa. And, and entering and leaving via different border points. Yeah, so, so my definition of You had to go through it. You can't dip in and out. Yeah, so yeah, my yeah, de- yeah, that was my yeah, definition. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. And you know, a lot of Google research about which borders are open between different countries. I eventually plotted this route, which was sort of near a 35,000 Ks as opposed to 10,000 Ks. It's a 35,000 kilometer journey. Yeah, and then I decided after, and then I realized, and then I did a bit more research, I realized that nobody had ever attempted a single continuous journey through every country in Africa in any kind of vehicle. So all yeah. of a sudden, my six month sabbatical, which was what, what my original plan was, was now became the sell everything you own, completely change your life journey. Um, and yeah, and then I was sort of, this is now 2012, I'm planning it. The Rugby World Cup was taking place in England in 2015. So I kind of then tied on the sort of final elements of the journey. So, you know, which, give myself yeah. something to aim for, but from a time point of view, because once I get to Cairo, if I've got a bit of time left, is then cycle through as much of Europe as I can yeah. to get to, to England for the World Cup in 2015. Yes. So that's how my first first ride started. So we love a bit of stats, obviously here. So we're gonna yeah. we're gonna bank some stats as we go through Ron's last 10 years. So so we've got 35,000 Ks, 48 countries. And just you, to update you on that one, sorry, that, was, that being, was the plan. It ended up being 42,000 Ks <laughs> um, through about 70 countries. Yeah, uh, yeah, because you, you know I've got to get from Cairo all the way up to London. Yeah, and I zigzagged through, but I had a bit of time in the end. I finished that African leg a little bit, I think it took about 22 months in the end to, to complete yeah, the so African leg. Yeah, that was really my next question was the time. We know at the distance, yeah. and we've got the number and the time. So it ended up being 27 months from Cape Town to Brighton, yeah. as it ended up. Uh, just over 42,000 kilometers through 70 countries. How and, much elevation do you know? That's a very good question. I, I didn't record it. No, I didn't. It was before I had even heard of Strava or anything like that. But uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, the Simeon Mountains in northern Ethiopia, cycling even to Lesotho, yeah. um, the Morocco yeah. Atlas Mountains in Morocco. There's a fair amount of climbing in there. Mm. 
Um, but certainly, I think so. The bigger challenges are probably more sort of cycling across the Sahara in the middle of the yeah, summer. Yeah, I want to, I want to, <laughs> touch on highs and lows uh, in a moment. But let's okay. So, so you make of, it. You, but, but let's 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 first the unpack the <laughs> high level of the last ten years. Okay. So that that brings you to London. You then <laughs> arrive in Brighton and you watch South Africa lose to Japan and save save the Rugby World Cup 2019. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. For which you were credited last night. <laughs> then. Then was the, and then I lose track of when you did the longest hole, as opposed to when you started to ride to Tokyo. Which one came first? Yeah. So in twenty, yeah. So I finished in twenty fifteen. Um, as I say, I literally had sold everything in, in the world that I owned. If I couldn't get on my bicycle, it was either on you know Gumtree or Craigslist or whatever the equivalent is. Mm. Um, and yeah, so I was in, in in the UK. I obviously enjoyed spent a bit of time in the yeah. enjoying the World Cup. And I was like, what what do you do next? And I kind of like sort of went back to SA for a while. Um, did a bit of speaking and things like that. Um, and then very fortuitously in 2016, I got a phone call from Hong Kong Rugby Union from the manager mm. of the team. And Hong Kong were touring Kenya for the first time, which was the first time they were touring Africa. Um, and I guess because I'd cycled through, through Kenya, I was now seen as a bit of a, an expert. Yeah. yeah and sure, um, sure. anyway, so I, long story short, I ended up in, in, in Nairobi as a liaison, unofficial liaison officer for Hong Kong Rugby on their two two test tour of, of Kenya, uh-huh. um, and I lived in Hong Kong. I was very involved in rugby there. So, I would um, imagine the culture shock from cycling through Africa for twenty two months to being in Hong Kong must have been something else. Uh, yes, and I mean, I've, <laughs> yeah, it's well. This is so. This is actually in Nairobi, so Hong Kong were touring Kenya. Uh, 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 but you then went back to Hong Kong, right? You didn't live there for a while. Uh, I'd look, yeah, I will come back. Yeah, I'd okay, look, I'd, sorry, Hong sorry. Kong. Hong Kong's like a boomerang city for me. I keep going back. <laughs> okay, <but> okay. <laughs> I've lived there three different times. Right, but, right. but this is—I was based in South Africa. Went back. To, went to Kenya to meet the Hong Kong team. Got you. Okay. Um, okay. And the first day, the coach says to me, "Ron, most of these guys have never been to Africa. You've cycled the whole continent. Mm. I just want to share your story." So I sort of gave a bit of story about my trip around the, the, mm-hmm. the continent. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the this Adam, one of the youngsters, and well, he was one of the older guys on the team. But one of the youngsters when I played in Hong Kong. Um, in a previous before I moved to Cape Town, and he was like, "Ron, I followed your whole trip online, and you did it. It's only hearing it now firsthand that I realised sort of just how much went into it." Um, he says, "I want to do something crazy," um, and he was a professional rugby player at that stage, but he knew his sort of time was coming. Um, and he said, "And he's Irish heritage." He said, "Maybe I should go to Ireland and hit a golf ball." He's a keen golfer around yeah. the coast of Ireland. Right. So I said, "If you want someone to tell you it's a good idea, you're speaking to the right person." Like I thought that was yeah. a brilliant idea. Um, but then I said, well, Adam, you know, 10 years ago, I went to a rugby tour in Mongolia. And uh, now there's a country you can go and play golf <laughs> across. It's got these planes that run forever. Um, yeah, so over the course of that 10-day trip, when he should have been focusing on rugby, every spare you moment we had, him and I sat down with coffees planning what it would take to hit a golf ball across Mongolia. So you teed off on the western side, and you played all the way across, and he putted in on the eastern side. And I looked this up, 20,093. Bang on. 3,093 shots later, he putted it in at a club at the, on the eastern side of Mongolia. Correct, just outside Ulaanbaatar, the capital. <laughs> yeah. So um, it was just over 2,000 kilometers. We yeah. did it in 80 days. I think we averaged 25, 26, 27 kilometers. I was a caddy. Yeah. Um, so I literally had this cart made, which was which I strapped to my waist, sort of man-hauled it across Mongolia. Picked um, the dog up on the way. Picked the dog up on day yeah. three or four. Yeah, um, delivered it to a family. Yep. We how's, that dog. How, how's that dog? Do you know? Yeah. Well, Adam went back to yeah. So just to give a bit of context, his dog joined us on day three. Yeah. Um, and Andrew King, who you know, was filming the first few days of our trip to make a documentary. Yeah. And he was like, "This dog might stay with you." And he yeah. told us another story about some Mongolian trail race with it. And anyway, this dog walked 
six, sorry, 77 days with us, almost 2,000 kilometers across Mongolia. Mm. Um, and yeah, we went, we found him a home just outside Little Matar, the day, after, day before we left. And um, Adam actually went back the following summer to go visit him. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, he was an old dog. He passed oh, away later after that. So, so. Good life, though. Joined you what for a story life. he had to yeah. tell his, his mates. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, that's many, the hardest thing I've done in my life. Yeah? The, the caddying? Yeah. Why? Yeah, physically. Um, I mean, that trolley at different stages would have weighed 125 kilos. You know, it's all our water Falling. through the Gobi Desert. Should have had to carry. What was Adam carrying? <laughs> well, he, he, he had a little backpack and he had to swing a golf club. So he had to hit his golf hard. ball. <laughs> his body. I was looking at him, and the, obviously under the under you know the conditions he was playing with. Yeah. I mean, how many, thankfully he's a really really good golfer. How many balls do you lose? Interesting question. We Taylor made you know they they actually gave us a set of clubs and four hundred balls, which we guesstimated. We actually only used one hundred and fifty in the end. Oh really? So I was pretty, good pretty going, impressed actually. with. And we actually measured the distance. We had a very a rudimentary app that. Um, a tech company in, in South Africa developed for us, so we um, the effectively you could, walked or the shot distance each time you. Yeah, walk. effectively we measured the start point and the end point mm-hmm. of each shot. So it was a, it's a crude way of measuring it, but one yes. or two of the balls sort of hit 50, 50 kilometers. One or two of them lasted one shot, um, and by oh, that right. time so you, got, you got a fifty k mileage out of a ball. Out of a ball before <laughs> it was lost, but it actually, yeah. So what was the longest shot he hit? Because I'd imagine in Mongolia you could probably get some some properly downhill shots, and you could just. Get it rolling, and it's going to go. Well, it literally, the drive would have been. It's the only time he used the driver, so yeah, he insisted yeah, yeah. we carry oh, the driver, and he teed it up. And he's a scratch golfer, so he's a really good golfer. He absolutely <laughs> smoked it down this hill in the all-time mountains. That would have clearly been the longest. And he tried to hit a three wood off the deck once or twice, but um, oh, yeah. he ended up basically just walking with his wedge and just hitting it about a hundred yards every time. Just yeah, walk, yeah. that's walk. the average, eh? Twenty thousand shots in two thousand k's. Yeah, yeah, it works out yeah. to be about hundred meters about of shots. Yeah. Not bad going because sometimes you would have to play it out sideways. Oh yeah, a lot of times we get to little. We had to obviously aim for the towns to get supplies. So yes. every time we got to town, he was sort of chip through the, you know, have to chip down the high street effectively. <laughs> so people were just looking at us. So we were, we were very strict about the the spirit and the rules of the game of golf. Right, played where it lies. Yeah, he played exactly played where it lies. Um, you, let's let's talk about the physical because I know that when you left on the Africa trip, now so now we're going back in time. Mm. You weren't trained at all on day one. No, I was literally the fattest and unfittest of my yeah, life. Yeah, yeah, and you just got on the bike and off you went. And, and in fact, your website and campaign started out as Fat Kid on a Bike. Yeah, and that was your that was your name for yourself. Yep. And I'm just curious about how you how you understood and and assessed and felt fitness gains over that ride. Like what what was your experience like in the first week, month, six months? Well, so day one of that journey of 800 something days, the only day I planned was day one. So I had some friends came to um, down to Cape Town Stadium to meet me. And we were going to cycle to Franchuk together. Um, mm. We had a mate who lived there. He was going to organize a barbecue it's for us. Nigh on 80, 100k? It's like 80, 85k. Yeah, um, yeah. which is a big climb out of Stellenbosch. Mm. The only real climb of the day. Yeah. Um, and on a normal road bike, on a normal day, Not a it's a pretty, problem, pretty, but pretty you straightforward were carrying ride. heavy, eh? Yeah, so I'm on a fully loaded touring bike, which I'd never ridden in my life. I was staying with friends in up at Greenpoint, which was two or three k from the start. So I, was, mm. I rode down to the start line on this bike for the very, very first time. I'll come back to why that was the case. Yeah. Um, and a fully loaded touring bike, probably 40 kilos, roughly, of, of and plus me at my heaviest. Um, and it was one of the longest, hardest days of riding. I can imagine. Yeah. But we, I mean, I had friends pushing, pushing me up Hells Hochter. And I'm sure they were going, my goodness, if Ron can't get to Franschuk, how the heck's he ever going to get to yeah, to London? Mm. And um, I mean, that we, we were supposed to, we told people we'll meet you there at one o'clock. I think we arrived like three, half past three in the afternoon. Thanks, you know, thanks to me. And um, you know, I it was, I mean, I was in, I was in massive pain. I was cramping up hell's after quads, 
quads from yep qu- uh, abductors sort of like the abductors yeah, yeah, yeah. so you, that's just conditioning because you're pushing such a heavy heavy load now. yeah and i've been and i've been sedentary and then going back to why i was so so i'm one of those people that basically if i stop exercising i just balloon very very quickly and um i got roped into playing a rugby match in february or so of that year which is now i suppose to leave in, i think I was, originally said the first of may i was going to leave got roped into this charity rugby match broke my wrist off the kickoff it was quite a complicated mm. break um, so I, had, I ended up having two operations on it. Um, so I had to push the start date back two months in the end by, on the advice of my mm. I just couldn't mm. do anything. So um, in this, and in that period of time, the bicycle that I ordered online had arrived. So um, and obviously got that all set up. And yeah, so basically from February to June when I left, I did zero exercise. So I just couldn't do. I was just literally doing yeah. nothing. Yeah. Um, so that sort of explains the fatness and the and the and the, the toughness of day one. Day two. So yeah. So your friends are pushing you, thinking, no doubt, how's this guy going to do this? Has he bitten off more than he What were you thinking? Oh, I knew I was going to do it. It's incredible. So it didn't it didn't bother you that you said, and why? Like, did you know that the fitness would emerge, or did it just not bother you that you, you felt like you could do this and suffer for? As long as it took. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess having played a lot of sports and things like mm. that, I, I guess I quite enjoy suffering. I can, I'm fine with that. Mm. Um, it was more just the mentality. Like I've sold everything, Ross. I was all in on this. It wasn't like yeah, a like a Viking burn the boats kind of approach. One hundred. That's exactly yeah. what burning the boats. I gave myself no choice. Um, and I just I, I always used to, I always used to, I, I don't know why this random. I said unless I get crushed or hit by a truck in the Congo, I know I'm going to get to Brighton. Yeah, it's just yeah. I'm all in on this. And I've read so many stories about just people sticking things out. Perseverance. I've read mm. all these. You know, again, like time I have to get fit. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I just, yeah, I was, I mean, I was an absolute mess that day one. Um, and day two, I could, I mean, I could hardly walk day two. Um, <laughs> but now I was on my own and I've just, you know, but I plugged on, I climbed up, uh, out the back of Franschuk, you got, come in the number fast as you, Franschuk Pass, I guess. Yes, you, yeah, you, know, you end up at the dam, right? Yeah, and exactly. You drop down into that dam. Um, and it was like, I mean, that's one of the longest days of, I mean, I, I think I got to 25Ks that day. I mean, it took all day, but I was determined not to push. I mean, I stopped on that climb two or three, yeah, two or three times. Eventually got to the top, um, found a place to, to, well, just as a bit of a side note, I was thought I was going to be camping my first night of camping. And then somebody bumps into me at the, at like the, the, the mm. I get a milkshake mm. or whatever, invites me into their home. And that really set the <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, and that sort of, yeah. and then he, his daughter farmed like 80 Ks down the road. So mm. I cycled there the next day. And huh. I re- Ross, but I can probably remember, I would say day 10 or 12, thinking back now, somewhere in the Karoo, um, a few hundred Ks from, from Cape Town. It was probably the, like I just, one day I just woke up. Yeah, I was going to say like fitness either emerges gradually and slowly or very slowly and then all at once. Yeah, it really it was like that for me. It was incredible. Yeah. I mean, you can probably explain why that happens or I how can't. that happens. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, I just know it from my own experience as well, is that you put in work, you put in work, you put in work, and you're suffering, and it's not happening, and then all of a sudden, it's like a light switch that says. That's exactly what happened, yeah. and it was amazing. It was like liber- weight mm. off my shoulders. Um, I mean, obviously, some very, very long days ahead, but yeah. in the future, yeah. forward. But from there, it was just, I just felt good and strong. And compare now that to pulling the, the 120. Did you? It was 120. Depending on water, yeah. It's up to over, yeah, 120, 125 kilos. Yeah, on. Compare that to pulling that. I mean, because that's almost a. So one of the things with fitness is the load you put on yourself can cause adaptation, which is yeah. what you describe on your cycle, yes. or it can cause failure. Where you actually never get on top of that load. It's just always more than you can handle. And yeah. with a sled, did you get on top of it eventually? So it was, it was, it was on wheels. So it was a trolley on wheels. Yeah, um, yeah the and, trolley. Well, yeah, so yeah, so I, yeah. Yeah, so I, I mean, the, f- the first hour, two hours of that journey, I thought we made a terrible mistake. Right. Uh, it was, you know, the Altai Mountains is pretty wet down there. 
um, the thing got the, the cart got stuck, mm. so I was having to like literally, or Adam would obviously help me pull this cart out of the basically like this sort of yeah. swamp. Mm. Um, and yeah, so the first few days were really tough until we sort of hit the, the, the river valley, and it was it was a lot flatter. Um, so it was amazing when I sort of had the rolling when rolling resistance wasn't that much, and it was flat. It was actually super easy to pull. Mm. As soon yeah. as there was any sort of incline um, yeah. or any sort of you know rough terrain that's when it really i really noticed it i mean there were times when i, I had walking sticks of checking poles yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and i yeah. sometimes it got to a point where i was actually like having to haul up these up these these passes and these saddles over different valleys just for the listeners that documentary is still available right yeah um if you go call the, the longest hole yeah the longest hole film.com i think it is the website so you can go so and watch it there the long, i'll put this in the show notes folks it's the longest hole film.com yeah correct and yeah. it's made by a mutual mate more like a really good mate of yours yeah. and mutual friend uh, Andrew King. Andrew King, yeah. So what we'll do is we'll pop that show note and go have a look at it because you had some proper adventures. On yeah, that it was well done. I mean, unbelievable footage as well. Yeah, the, and the first few days of that, I mean, I mean, it was obviously these doubts about whether we'd, I mean, I, I was very confident of the route. I was the, the more the equipment I was a bit mm. concerned about. And I mean, I had some, I've had quite a few, I'd had a hip operation about a year before to clean out a bit of loose debris in my hip. Mm. Um, I've had two ankle operations as well leading up to that so mm. just in the yo-yo. So I really was hobbling. Um, the first sort of, two three weeks i mean it, it was every step of my ankle was really really sore and again it just it, all of a sudden it just get better eh? it just it all just of a sudden clicked and it's and i was actually fine i mean it was just but i was at the end of that trip the lightest i've ever been the first time i've been under 90 kilograms probably since i was 15 years old really um so i think that it was hard to get enough calories I yeah mean, i want to talk about the calories as well like actually maybe let's do that now yeah. so in and there, there obviously there's there's the cycle we've spoken about there was the caddying the longest hole and then there were actually three more rides, but let's get onto those in a bit. Mm. Just in terms of nutrition, like, what was it, 42,000 K. This last trip was 22,000 K in 300 days. You are on the bike for seven to nine hours a day, 10 hours? No, you're normally six to six, six to seven hours. Six to seven hours. Yeah. Even conservatively, that's three and a half thousand calories on the bike, yeah. plus your daily. So, and you're in remote places. How, yeah. do, how do you eat? Yeah, so I've got a hand, uh, I've got a very strict seafood diet. <laughs> yeah, so I see food yeah. and I eat it. Um, yeah. and it's like banking, banking food. You just, yeah, I just mm. eat food. I mean, yeah. you know, I always have two port, no, not literally every time, but I'll often yeah. just have, yeah. uh, but it, you, you, you do have a lot of, what are you carrying though? So I carry, I've got a handlebar bag. Yeah. And in the handlebar bag, I've got a strict rule of always having some sort of snacks. Often that is just, mm cheap sugary biscuits or nuts or um, mm-hmm. local cho- mm-hmm. you know, chocolate bars or um, mm-hmm. sometimes bread and you know made sandwiches or something like that so i've always got something to hand to snack on um but one thing i have learned is wherever there's people there's food that's true yeah. um and the way that africa was a little bit ex- exception there's some pretty remote places where there weren't many people around but on my last couple of trips even in the most remote places you're always seeing somebody within probably 40 50 kilometers so you're not completely off piece you know so if you're following sort of roughly from town to town to town. So there's always a you know a, caf- a cafe or a grocery store mm. or a restaurant or often you people invite you into their homes to eat. And so when you walked into one of those stores, what's the first thing you were looking for? That's a very, very good question. It com- it's a completely, you know, you'd be cycling in, in Japan, the 7-Elevens there are like some of, yes. the, some of the best food you get around. Yeah, like, yeah, I remember buying sushi there because I was, you, you were there as well, 2019, yeah. and there was that typhoon, remember? Yes. Ha- Hagibis or something. Com- yeah, Haggis or something like that. Hagibis, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, everything was being shut down, and I dashed out to the 7-Eleven, and I bought a sushi meal. It was very good. It's really, <laughs> really good. Oh, um, yeah. Egg mayo sandwiches are, I think <laughs> Anthony Bourdain says one of his best meals yeah, he's yeah. had. So, yeah. so, I mean, there, yeah, there's limitless supply, and um, that's a good, I mean, there, I would, yeah, sushi would be one, call me the name, the other, just sort of these rice balls with salmon yeah. inside. 
um, set, yeah, sandwiches, things right, like so that. So were you, were you consciously aware? Obviously, you were the seafood concept mm. meant that you were aware, like, I just got to get calories in because I know I'm consuming so many a day. Or else, I mean, were, I was, you, yeah. were you ever sorry to interrupt? Were you ever aware that you were running a deficit for quite a long time? Was there a moment where you said, "Actually, geez, I'm I'm consistently hungry, and this is not good. I have to change this pattern." Yeah, I think Central Asia in 2019, it was really tough to find. Mm. It was that was probably yeah, and um, yeah, the, the, yeah, and again, it was. I would I wouldn't say I force fed myself, but I, yeah, I would. I really would make an effort to. To not feel any, yeah, because I mean, again, you, I mean, I've listened to every one of your, I've had plenty of time, I listen to all your podcasts, and I, and I listen, you know, so you, in terms of like, I, you know, I think you, you talk about eat when you're hungry, drink when you're thirsty, and don't think too much more about it yeah, than that. Yeah. So, so, and so that's, make it more complicated than it needs to be. So, yeah, that's kind of what, yeah. what, it, beca- yeah, what it becomes. Yeah. But you didn't have a sort of go to sports drink product, you were just, you just, whatever's oh, no, no. available. Yeah, I mean, co- I mean, I, I've consumed more Coke in the last 10 years of my life than I could ever imagined. Consuming, so yeah, you're just yeah, you know, sugary. You just were looking for sugar hits. Like Five hundred mil Coke. What's that? That's two hundred grams. No, ten percent, right? That's fifty grams, two hundred calories. That's gone in thirty minutes. Yeah, but often I would be, I would be getting a two liter Coke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would. Do that. No, so, yeah, I would. And it would just, yeah, I mean, the thing, the thing for me I, is that I, the thing I crave. If you the thing I crave the most yeah. is cold things. Like oh, really? a cold drink or cold water, because mm. often your you know, your water bottles are the oh, same yeah. temperature as the air thing. So that's mm. what I find myself diving for the first time mm. I get it. Mm. In a lot of places, it's not like you know we come from South Africa, everything's refrigerated, and uh, but the other parts of the world where things are you know more temperate climate, where things are just on the shelf, and you know there's a little remote convenience store, you get there and it's just you know warm water, warm cokes on the shelf. And yeah, so you just want something cold. Yeah, so. Um, were you monitoring anything related to your adaptation, like sleep? And obviously, you're not monitoring energy intake. It's not like you can do that in the, in the midst of this journey. But were you monitoring it, or were you just listening to your body? No, I was just listening to my body, to okay. be honest. Yeah. I mean, I think in hindsight, of, I think we spoke about this last night, I would have loved to have done some sort of yeah, well, taking it a bit more seriously. <laughs> and, uh, you know, no, yeah. I would have loved to have done something, you know, just out of curiosity. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, worn a heart rate monitor the whole time. And, uh, you didn't do you that know. at all? I, no, so I, no, pretty much the whole, yeah, pretty much the whole way from, this, for example, Tokyo to Auckland, I did, uh, okay. and then from, yeah, pretty much the first half right. of this last trip, and then the battery eventually died, and I kind of gave up on that. What about sleep? Were you sleeping like a baby, or was it difficult to sleep? I sleep. That's the one thing you get a lot of sleep. I mean, often when you're camping, you just sort of, you, yeah. towards the end of the day, you're looking for a, a good place to put up a tent. You put your tent up. You have your, your, your cook, you boil mm. some two-minute noodles, go to sleep, and you often go to sleep basically at sunset. Um, and even on a like normal blow up mattress, after six, seven, eight uh, hours of cycling, mm. you, you know, ten days in a row, um, sleep's not difficult at all. You know, sometimes it gets a bit cold or a bit hot mm. and things mm. like that. But from I would often have ten, eleven hours sleep. And illness? Yeah, that's probably because the, that's, the, the biggest downers of these trips is when you do get ill. And your uh, immune system has to be suppressed to some degree by all the exercise. Yeah. So that's doing, this so. is the and this trip for the first time it really I had a, my biggest wobble of all my of all my journey. So I was yeah. in Central America. Um, yeah, we still the, have to tell the listeners what all these trips were. So you're kind of getting teases here, listeners. But we'll, we'll, we'll get there. But go on. Central America. Yeah, so yeah. Central America. Yeah. I'd probably, uh, I mean, I started, yeah, we'll have to come give us some more context. Basically, been on the road over a year. Mm. And um, it was, I mean, it, the heat is just incomprehensible how hot it was. The hottest time of the year, the humidity. And I struggle. I'm from born and bred in Durban, a humid part of South Africa. And I've just never really adapted to it. You was in Costa Rica, right? Yeah, so in, yeah, so yeah I was through. in Costa Rica in October. 
and jeez, it was it was it was heavy, heavy, yeah. heavy, heavy. That's beautiful, but yeah, it was some of the and yeah, that was jungle, some, like proper jungle. Yeah, and I just mm. and I, you talk about I felt so depleted on mm. on every level, um, and I picked up some sort of fever, but like very minor underlying fever, and I took a couple of days off here and then I just couldn't shake it. And eventually I just got, and I was just, yeah, so depleted is the best description I had. I just was completely worn out and I was falling further and further behind in my sort of required kilometers to, mm. to get to ultimately to here today. And um, so eventually I decided, I took the pragmatic decision, you know what, this is my journey, my adventure. And I've always been so strict about covering every inch mm. of a bicycle and being as perfect as, as I can be. But I took the decision that I need some proper time off. So I actually flew ahead to Mexico City. Okay. Um, Got a Airbnb, cheap Airbnb from, and I took about four weeks off. Yeah. Um, and I didn't, I didn't, I just, I was all focused on food. So there's a grocery store just down the road. Um, I think I made a like conscious decision to probably eat 500 grams, so a kilogram of fruit and vegetables a day. That's what I was just like. <laughs> I really just binged out. Um, so, in actual fact, your body maybe was telling you that despite all your efforts to access food on the way and how. Let's not say plentiful, but available food was. You yeah. probably were still falling below the bar. Yeah. So I think what it, I mean, I think there's a big difference between. Point, I was yeah. getting enough calories to survive and cycle. Yeah. But I think I was just the nutrition was just. Yeah. yeah. You eat mm. so much bad food. Um, the quality mm. of food, really, mm. and you, you know, and obviously you're on a budget as well. So you, you know, it's, it's you're often just choosing the cheapest option wherever you go. So mm. I think that's that, that's that was and it made a huge difference so over in the four weeks, just binging on good food basically. Um, uh, I slept well, you know, because uh, sorry, going back to it, I normally sleep well, but obviously because I was a bit sick, I just, then I was struggling to sleep. It was mm. so hot, and trying to camp in that sort of weather it was just—it was just the recipe. Everything was just unraveling, really. Mm. Um, and then a full three—it was about four weeks in the end. Um, even for, I'd still go for walks, so it wasn't just completely rest. But um, yeah, that was the—and that gave me the second win that I needed mm. um, for the next what's turned out to be four or five months. And I've just—I've actually been felt awesome Fine. since then. Yeah. 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 Okay, so we have jumped a little bit back and forth in in this in your ten year journey here. So we had the Africa trip, which we still want to touch on some things. You had the the longest haul, and then comes cycling trip two, right? So that's so, the so the first. I think for the biggest takeaway from the African trip for me is that I jumped up the hardest thing I could possibly dream of doing on a bicycle, and I pulled it off. And that sort of midlife confidence boost. I mean, I had three birthdays in the row. So I started as a thirty eight year old, <laughs> pretty unsure of myself. Um, and finished as a 41-year-old who sort of just had this most wild adventure mm. and as I say, managed to pull it off. A lot of people, I think people were sort of, as you say, day one we referenced, but physically was I going to make it? And there's a lot of concerns about, you know, all the concerns that people often have about Africa. And, yeah, did you ever feel unsafe? Um, I don't know. And again, I'm interrupting, you know, because yeah. we're still going to build your journey. But did you ever feel unsafe on that trip and think to yourself, oh my God, this is bad. I could die here. 99... I guess dozens of times, but 99 out of 100 does vehicle related. So it's oh. trucks overtaking on a blind rise. And I right. think whether you're cycling in Paris or Cape Town or Lagos. Yeah. Every cyclist in the world listening to this is nodding. So. Yeah, exactly. So that for me is overall, is all these trips put together. Mm. That's been the biggest. I've only ever been actually hit once. Unfortunately, it was a side shot. And I was actually in Senegal and yeah. a truck sort of, uh, bus, like a sort of 30 seater bus hit me from the side. And that was, that was obviously, in the moment, you know, like yeah. a, a frightening thing, but I was a bit battered and bruised. And uh, actually, remember <laughs> emailing your friend Yorun, yeah, Doctor Swart. Yeah. Um, well, well, comment how I did it in those days. Well, for what's up? But uh, mm. so the truck, the bus hit me on my. You ride it, you drive, or you cycle on the right hand side there, mm -hmm. and the front right of the bus hit my. It actually went hit was my tricep, so that was a, the point of contact. Yeah, right. right. And it was, so that was bruised. Obviously, I was a bit scratched and 
grazed him when I hit the road. Yeah. Um, but that's I thought I'd possibly broken whatever the top huh. this bone. Yeah. So then, anyway, fortunately, just a few days off. It was a bit. I felt a bit sore for a while, but right. um, and but then yeah. But otherwise, and then I've once incident one day in Nigeria from a group of youths who were giving me a bit of trouble. That's the only time. We'll come to stats later. We'll come back to wrap up some stats. But that's the only time in all my journeys that I've actually felt directly threatened by a human being. By a human being. Once that, in all those journeys. Interesting, yeah. Because people would be, hey, can't do that. You'll, you'll get killed. But Ross, there's something about a bicycle, particularly a touring bike, yeah. that makes you, is universally relatable. People understand a bicycle. Except if you're in a car. Then you're no longer human. Well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but that's sometimes the argument yeah. against wearing helmets, against wearing yeah, big yeah, yellow yeah, things. Yeah, but yeah. if you're in a Big summers, you know, I wear like a big cricket hat, basically, like a big floppy. I'm much more concerned about sun, sun cancer, or you know, basically cancer and getting sunburned. But, mm, mm. Um, and, uh, but yeah, so there's something that makes you human. You know, big bicycle, people, you know, you've got big luggage. I've got mm. flags in the back of my bike now. Not for any sort of safety reason. I was just to sort of so know, people celebrate are more inclined to support you than to threaten you. Oh, yeah. Oh, but Ross, that's for me is my biggest takeaway from my African trip is Sub-Saharan Africa is, is the poorest place on the planet in inverted commas, you know, depending on how you yeah, yeah. economists will tell you. But, and that's the thing, cycling strips you down to your basics. All you're really thinking about is food, water, and shelter. Yeah. And that's what 95% of people in Sub-Saharan Africa are mostly concerned about. You know, right. how am I going to get food and water for my family and mm, shelter? Sure. Um, and then this strange white guy on a bicycle comes across this village in the middle of Mozambique or wherever, yeah. and the first thing people do is offer food and water, which is their most valuable resource. And right, right. often, some probably a woman, most likely, has probably carried their water from the river, possibly mm. kilometers away, mm-hmm. and mm. without any expectation of anything in return. Mm. And that, for me, is my my lived experience of cycling through Africa, through Somalia, through Sudan, Chad, Equatorial Guinea, all these places that are only ever in the news when there's bad conflict stuff happens, and, and conflict mm, and things like that, mm. and we get this impression that's what our entire country's like all yeah, the time, yeah. everybody's out to get you. And, Honestly, my experience, all I can just say is from my lived experience, that's completely the opposite. Fascinating. So, okay, uh, you, you, you're now invincible. <laughs> Sorry, I'm invincible. You I got did. to London. Yeah. Um, and and I'm you now say filled. that was the hardest thing I could think of, so now I'm going to do something a little easier. Well, it's, well it was also <laughs> like, you know, but also made me realize, like, you know, from a, I guess from a philosophical point of view, how much I had underestimated myself in my previous life like in everything from business to yeah. work to my own sporting career in a bit of commas like i realized like i'd always underestimated myself and now like as i say this conference like, yes, if i can do that i can really do do anything and um in in yes yeah, so we talked about the longest hole but fast forward a, a couple of years now um um i'm back and living back in hong kong i'd actually had a mid-adventure career break because after my longest hole my hip that, that i'd originally had yeah, an operation yeah, was, was such place. a mess so i had my hip yeah, replaced yeah. Um, I took up this job at Hong Kong Rugby, which is right up my alley. I sit here and really enjoy, I really enjoy working in rugby. It seemed very serendipitous. I, I literally walked off the golf course of Mongolia. We flew in and out of Hong Kong, had a couple of days there, catch up with old mates, and had a conversation which led to a, a, a job interview. And, took, and I just thought, this is a sign. I've done one big adventure on my own. I've done one with a mate. My body is a complete wreck now. And, um, you know, this is just a sign that it's time to do something normal. And But living in Hong Kong in 2017, 18, uh, leading up to the World Cup coming to Japan, Rugby World Cup, yeah. coming to Asia for the first time in the industry, in the sport. There was a lot of, obviously, interest in the World Cup and excitement ahead of it. Um, and Hong Kong Rugby was supporting this program called Child Fund Rugby, yes. which operates in Southeast Asia. And in a great stroke of genius, in my opinion, World Rugby and the Japan Rugby Union appointed Child Fund Rugby as a principal charity partner for the World Cup in Japan. 
So it's the first time that they had points mm -hmm. a rugby program as, the, as a charity partner. Made a lot of sense. You know, the people that were being benefiting from the program are in Asia. It's using the sport of rugby. And Hong Kong rugby supported the program quite a lot as well. So I knew, I knew about the program. And then in a, it's amazing how life works. But I was chatting to my doctor in Hong Kong, who's pretty friendly with as well. Um, and I said, Dave, you know, I've got this idea. You know, I'm having my, you know, I have a place next month. Going through a bit of a midlife crisis, wondering, you know, like I'm feeling a bit old all of a sudden. Um, so I want to do one more big trip, you know, before my body completely shuts down. Do you think it would be possible to cycle from London, go back to the previous mm. host of the World Cup, to Tokyo, to the next one, to the next one with a new hip? Uh, and he said, Ron, if you do your rehab properly, you should be, you should be golden. And then we started talking a bit more about it. And I'd actually helped his, one of his sons plan a trip across, well, gave him some basic advice about cycling. He planned a trip across Turkey or in China a few years before. And uh, he said, oh, who are you going to do the trip with? I said, I haven't even got my head around doing it for myself, but I haven't really given any thought. He said, you should ask James. And I literally said, who the hell's James? And he goes, no, he's my, one of my sons. And I said, you know, how many kids? Anyway, it turns out mm -hmm. James actually worked for Childfront Rugby okay. and really was quite, you know, enjoyed his, you know, he's quite jealous of his, his brother's cycle trip across, you know, Asia a few years yeah. before. Yeah. And he said, well, I think James would be up for it if you're looking for a partner. I didn't think much of it, but I got this message from this Vietnam number a couple of weeks later. He says, hi, my name's James. My dad gave me a number. Anyway, I flew to Vietnam a couple of weeks after that just to go and meet the guy, have a couple of beers. And mm -hmm. on the handshake, we said, I said, see you at the start line. So that's, we knew each other for two days and then we cycled across the world together. Um, but it was, but the whole coming back to the, the how it came about. So I made up my mind, this is what I wanted to do. Um, and for me, it was important to actually do it for something other than just the sake of adventure. And yeah. I mean, which is, Adventure for adventure's sake is amazing, but I, I, this time I felt that I really wanted to do, make an impact, help, yeah, help support childhood rugby, mm. use it for something. So I got a hold of um, Alan Gilpin at World Rugby, who was COO at the time. Yeah, he was he was responsible for the delivery of that 2019 World Cup. Correct, exactly. So, yeah. so his job was to deliver the tournament. Mm -hmm. um, he's a keen cyclist himself. So I met him at a coffee shop in Waterloo. Uh, and said, Alan, I've got this idea, cycling, blah, 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 as I've just mentioned. Um, could you organize me a replica of the, of the trophy? Some, even if it's plastic, something I can take with me as a symbol of a journey, almost like the Olympic flame. Right. And he said, Ron, that's a really shitty idea. Like it's <laughs> it's, it's going to be bulky and yeah, it's going to be awkward. In hindsight, yes. Yeah, he, says, he says, but... Here's an idea. Here's an idea. Yeah. We have a tradition in world rugby. We, we present the referee for the opening match with a commemorative whistle to start the tournament. Yes. So why don't you take that for us? And that could be the symbol of the journey. Mm. Brilliant idea. And that tied in very well with one of their worldwide partners, which was DHL at the time. Yeah, so you became effectively the delivery vehicle. Oh, and I, and I, my best accreditation that I've ever received was at some, at some one of the hospitality in Japan. Yeah. was, um, you know, you have Ron Rutland and it was Whistle Courier. That's the best, that's best job like. title in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so effectively, I got tasked with delivering the match whistle for the opening game of the tournament, which was a huge honor. Um, went back to Twickenham Stadium, my James and I, beginning mm -hmm. of 2nd of February, middle of winter, Twickenham Stadium. Um, Alan presented us the whistle on the field. Uh, there was about 30 or 40 people joining us for day one. And uh, we spent 219 days cycling. It's amazing. You can cycle from London to Tokyo, never catch a flight. There's one ferry from England to France, another short ferry across the Bosphorus in Turkey, and a final ferry from Shanghai to Osaka. Um, so, then, which is yeah, amazing. Yeah, so, so 219 days. Yeah, 219 days, just over 20,000 Ks. Okay, so, so another hundred a day average. On a, yeah, on a kilometre per week basis, yeah. the, the most intense of all my trips. Why? Because there were lots of like non-riding days as well. Oh no, just no, just the number of days available. Oh, I see. okay. And the distance we had to cover. Right. So I think it averages just over five hundred a week. 
which is pretty, which is basically averages to five days of riding a week on average. Um, so it was just, it was pretty full on. And how many countries there? 23 from memory. Uh, amazing routes. I mean, we obviously leaving, as I said before, leaving London in the middle of winter in February, um, it, just, it just worked out from the timing. We couldn't leave any earlier because I was still recovering from my hip. Mm. Um, still had some work obligations. Uh, we couldn't keep him later, though, just wouldn't have had the time. So the first month, it took us 33 days to get from London to Istanbul, which I think is about 3,000 K. So we really bombed that first mm. month. I think we took one or two days off in Europe. Um, obviously, avoided Did you go over the Alps? No, we avoided the mountains. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you couldn't anyway, maybe. A lot of them are closed. Closed, yeah. So we just took the... I mean, I mean, obviously, many freezing days. We sort of banked on being able to find accommodation every night, so we sent ahead our camping gear yeah. to, to, to lighten the load a little bit to Istanbul. Right. Um, and we then cycled all the way across Turkey and eastern Turkey in what would have been, then been, I guess, middle of to late March is one of the coldest. It's about 2,000 meters or so. It's, mm. just, like, it's similar to the steppe in, in Mongolia in terms of just being completely arid yeah. and dry. Yeah. And my goodness, the, the, my hands and feet... And I, again, I, know, I listen to podcast reviews. We've discussed exactly this. And I was Even just, with the warm gear on, you then just you can't s- get warm. Yeah, you, you, well, you start sweating. Right. And, and, it cools off. and then as soon as that cools off, I mean, mm. I just, I remember just, I mean, it was absolute agony. Um, and I even, you know, fingers, hands. And then one day, one of the other important, my main, most important appendage actually also took a bit of, <laughs> <laughs> um, which was really, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's how bad it was at one stage. So, uh, and then you sort of, and it's, and it's rural, you end up in these little tiny little like petrol gas stations. I remember very distinctly the one day sort of being taken in and this, um, this is actually so now in Western Iran. It's, it was just as, you know, and this, these truck drivers basically sat around like a gas stove trying to warm up. Um, so yeah, so anyway, so we crossed Turkey into Iran and then into Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan and then Tajikistan. And, um, a lot of your listeners might know the, the, the Pamir Highway. It's a, it's not a highway uh, yes. as such, but it's a sort of famous overland route up through Tajik Mountains, which is effectively the Himalayas. You, you it was also in a documentary, right? Did, did Andrew do that one also? Yes, he did, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah everything yeah. in between. That's, right. so that's also available. That's also, so that's everything in between. I'll put both these show links up and you can have a look at that one. There's a question I want to ask you about that, but I remember seeing the footage of that highway and it's, that's the one... Borders Afghanistan. On, yeah. yeah, so you're bordering yeah. across the rivers of Afghanistan, you're like waving to villages in, in Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, it's all sort of part of the old Silk Road, the Hippie Trail and the... Uh, so it really is a classic. I mean, it's tough riding. Mm. It's it's very bumpy and gravelly, and um, but it's dramatically, dramatically beautiful. And you you cycle from uh, yeah, pretty much sea level up to about almost um, four thousand five hundred meters. Yeah, just gradually over a couple of days. And obviously, the, even though it's now coming to April, May, it's still pretty cold at that altitude. You then at the plateau in Tajikistan for a few days. You cross into China just for a day or two. And then you cross into Pakistan and you drop down the Karakoram Highway. So you're dropping down from about 5,000 meters to sea level in about two days. Now, this is where you've got sites of the tallest peaks in the world. Eh? Yeah, There's 8,000 on the either side. I'm getting used to talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. It, was abs- it was peak climbing season, peak checking season then. So yeah. it's now it's like early May, I think it was, off the yeah. top of my head. Yeah. Um, I think down that Karakoram Highway that they call it, two, no, three or four of the 8,000 meter peaks. Oh, just, you see, you just see them. You can see them. They've got signboards. And it's, a, I mean, it's, it's, you can see why the mountains call people. It is just, yeah, yeah, yeah. it it's is spiritual. It's spiritual. Mm. It's like, I'm not a religious person anyway, but that literally takes your breath away. Mm. It's just blue. And then you drop down and sort of into the Islamabad and Lahore and that, and it's like midsummer. So you're going from 5,000 meters hovering around zero to dropping down to, and then it's now you're in peak mm. heat season mm. in Southeast Asia. So it was in Pakistan, into India, up into Nepal, back into India, across Myanmar, 
couple of days in Thailand, Laos, Vietnam, southern China, into yeah. Hong Kong, yeah. back into China, and then across to in, uh, Japan. Let's okay. Let's stay on the altitude now because five thousand meters is high. Yeah, yeah. Most people who land in, let's say, if you're in the United States, Denver, that's a mile high, sixteen hundred. Johannesburg's at around two thousand at its highest points. Mm. Mexico City, two thousand. Most people would feel that. Yeah. What's it like cycling from sea level to five thousand in two days? Because that's more aggressive than when you walk Kili. Yeah. So it's like it, yeah, it took a, it took yeah it took, but it was probably nearer three days. Three or, oh, okay. Yeah. To go three up, yeah. Three, okay, well, the, the Pamir Highway. In, in that journey, it, it probably actually took us near a week. But the journey I've just done no, now, that's, that's cycling through the Andes, yeah. very similar height. Um, I think, it, I think, yeah. So in the Himalayas, it was probably yeah, just under, just around five almost exactly. Um, you've got the two of the highest road, paved road border crossings in the world between Tajikistan and China, mm-hmm. and China and Pakistan. So that was cool. And then, but this journey now, cycling into Bolivia. You cycle across Paraguay, which is it could not be any flatter country in the world, <laughs> and then <laughs> and then you cycle up the up the Andes, and that was that was about two or three, that was about two and a half three days of climbing from again from sea level mm. pretty much to just over five thousand meters, um, but it's amazing. Like I didn't, I've never done Kili, uh, but I've never it didn't affect me really in any way. Like it was, I think it was slow enough still. I believe obviously it was because I was fine yeah. to adapt as I went. Yeah. The only time I would, I noticed anything was. And it similarly happened in the Himalayas was sleeping. Sometimes yes. I'd wake up and yeah. it's gasping. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you underbreathe and then all of a sudden the carbon dioxide falls yeah, up and oxygen but falls it, but and it, then you have to take a gasp. Yeah, you know, because I'm like cycling at such a low intensity. Uh, and again, I think we spoke about this last night, like zo- must be zone one, of, one and two, mm-hmm. 90% of the time. That sort of, uh, yeah, that sort of level of intensity, you're not really out of breath ever. Mm. So it's you just sort of go in your sort of low gear and you just mosey up on a slow, slow enough pace and um, you know it's, it's and then this journey now is, that I've just done is, is amazing up at that well, I was up at sort of between probably three eight and five thousand meters for about six or seven weeks which is pretty extraordinary yeah, up yeah. In it, and it's, yeah. un, it's the most beautiful I mean I want to take a bike packing back bike packing bike back there and just go and explore that's different place unbelievable, unbelievable. Yeah. Ross unbelievable yeah. Yeah. Um, so you I guess you, you're adapting you, I mean I uh, listened to your episode recently on yeah, altitude yeah. and that's so many comments I had to make um, and then, yeah, and then you then the best descent of my life was coming off the Andes, yes. the other side. I've never had a it, the most perfect profile for descending on a 40, 50 kilogram touring bike. I'm a big guy still, and descending down, you basically don't touch your brakes or pedals. Uh, I think I did that. I'll find the Strava mm. day, but I probably did it. I want to say probably probably in two hours. It was almost without a, a bump. Dropping from yeah, dropping yeah. from like probably three and a half, four thousand down to sea level, mm. and I, yeah, and sorry to come back to it, when I when I started then now I'm cycling sea level, I didn't notice any difference yeah. <laughs> in my in I don't know red blood cells or whatever that thing that makes I must say it just felt completely the same as I had been before I'd done that whole altitude right. time in the mountains. So. Yeah, that'll be intensity related. Though. I'm sure if you needed it, you would have had something more than yeah. before you did that. Yeah, the but yeah, just uh, was the hardest. What was the hardest climb you ever did on this ride? you say objectively and subjectively the hardest single climb um i must get i i know you're a stats guy i don't have all those to hand but i would just from i mean there's some really short sharp it's very 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 rare i've had to push my bike you know you can always you know but in japan of all places Mm. you know we've got the app that i use for routing for planning these trips is pretty good it's not perfect 
um, and you get a pretty good idea of the profile ahead. But there was one one day in particular, it was about a one and a half kilometer distance climb, it, but it was too it was it was too heavy, it was too steep to, to ride. So you push and to push a, a 40, 50 kilogram bike uphill, so that's hard. It's really really yeah, hard. Yeah. So that into that probably yeah. took I can't remember, it took me an hour or so. <laughs> I can't remember that, but it was just. And in the, it was yeah that it's that springs to mind straight away. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, there was a time in Laos. In Laos, we were and this was James and I. We were, it was about a two three kilometer climb, and then it was partly. I mean, the middle of the monsoon season, so the, the roads are terrible as like any in the best of times. Yeah. So it's partly just because the, the traction is so bad. Yes. Um, and that took that took a couple of hours as well, pushing this bike yeah. up this gravel road. Just, Know, just washed what the bike in a row washed away. And the longest continuous ascent was 100k or something. Yeah, I'd say the yeah, I must go back and check, but it's climbing up the Andes this year. It was, I mean, it basically it was yeah, you just go this, yeah, you just go and climbing and climbing and climbing. Yeah, and you climb 5,000 meters, yeah, so five percent for 100k, folks. Yeah, something, yeah, that's <laughs> right. So, yeah, there you go, that's the thing. So, I mean, and obviously fluctuates as you're going, but that's yeah, that's the average. Tell it? us about the mudslide. Yeah, so going back to things that almost killed me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess on the, that was now on the Tokyo trip. Tokyo that was, trip. That was the first whistle delivery. Yep. So whistle yeah. delivery, uh, it was all going very well actually, mm. um, despite yeah some of this the the frostbite and things like that. But we're in now Laos in the middle of the wet season, and Laos is this landlocked country between Vietnam, China, Thailand. Um, very, I mean, it's an incredibly beautiful place. Very, very. Um, I mean, it's infra- very little infrastructure. It's the most bombed country in the world. So during the Vietnam mm. War, um, it got absolutely hammered. Sort of the Americans were basically trying to. There's the um, get the name. Oh, this trail that the, the the Vietnamese were using to sort of smuggle arms and people, and they kind of went through Laos. Mm-hmm. So the and I think yeah, anyway, it's a long story. But um, so yeah, so infrastructure is not very good at all. They're there in the wet season, and. Uh, I had to get across, the, the type of visa that I had. I had to cross into Vietnam on a particular day because we were there on official business in inverted commas for child fund. Uh, we got some some sort of visa, which meant on my South African passport, I had to cross in on that day. James was on his British passport, and he had a slightly different visa. He could cross any time. So I was and the roads were so bad. I mean, roads were washed away. There was trucks in the river. It really was horrific. You see people's houses being washed away. Uh, some of the wildest conditions I've ridden in but I'm so stubborn and I just you know had a goal and I had to get to that so if you hadn't crossed that day denied access then what would have happened well then I would have been stuck and had to try and somehow this remote border right. town organize a visa okay so the stakes are pretty high the stakes are pretty high so yeah. you're going for it so I'm going for it yeah. and the weather conditions are atrocious yeah. and I've pushed my bike through a few landslides and you know mudslides that are already in you know up to maybe knee deep which is pretty tough going pushing a bike through that sort of, that sort of, that sort mm. of mud mm. Um, there's trucks stuck there. It's just it's really not well. Um, and then towards yeah, so the day is nice. The day is taking much longer than planned just because of the conditions are so tough. Um, and I get to what's probably now about two k's from the border, top of a hill, um, but must be 60, 70 meters above this raging river. And I can and I know that the the border post is at the bottom of this hill. And I get there and this is this 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 mudslide in front mm-hmm. of me. And I actually took my GoPro out and I said, yo. You can make a documentary out of this, but I've now got to work my way across this. Put the GoPro in, and it, and if you can imagine, the river and the cliff is on my left. Yeah, and the yeah, right yeah, hand well, side, right yeah, hand yeah. side is is the mountain. So mm, it's this yeah. road that's cut into the mountain. There's footage of this, by the way, in the documentary. The so I'm I'm not imagining, I'm remembering. Yeah, but so, so listeners, listeners, go and watch this. Yeah, watch so it's this. a relatively yeah. narrow two lane yeah. road. Yeah. I mean, lanes, is, <laughs> there's no lines or anything, but it's just this mm. road. So all this mud is now falling off the mountain. So obviously, the closer you are to the mountain, the thicker the mud is. And it sort of gets thinner as it goes towards the cliff, where it's 
washing over the edge. Mm. So I'm looking at this and it's, you know, if you drop over there, you're dead. I mean, it's, it's a massively high drop. It's no like yeah. ifs and buts about it. Yeah. So I'm trying to work out where to, further right I go towards the, the mountain is it's, the thick of the mountain. Yeah. I mean, it's up to chest deep. That's, that's how deep it is to the edge where it's basically ankle deep. So I sort of choose a line, watch the mud for a while to make sure it's not moving anymore. You know, it's like period of, you know, it's, it's very, very thick. So it's like a slow sludgy. Yeah. So I go in at a sort of level about knee deep again. Um, and it's slower. You, sort of, you know, you walk, you sort of push your bike, walk, you know, you sort of almost like lift, so you're lifting your bike. Yes. Or, or lift your bike. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden there's a surge of mud. And I get, you're heading towards this I'm heading towards the cliff. So, and I, I'm now it's obviously blind panic. So I, let, I just abandon the bike because I just thought, you know, I've got to save myself. Yeah. And I'm kind of swimming. Well, imagine Mud. trying to swim up towards the bank to get away yeah, from right. the edge. Yeah. But obviously, as the further towards the thicker it gets, and I'm now like chest deep in this mud. Sort of, and it's like, it's almost, it's almost like, it's so heavy and it's full of rocks and debris. And, and you're trying to pull yourself mm. out of this and trying to it's like. terrifying, just listening know, so to I mean, it. I can't, it's just rocky. And, um, yeah, and, and I'm here today to tell you mm. I made it. <laughs> um, the bike's gone. Uh, no, and then, you know what? Fortunately, the bike, it, you know, the, that surge stopped. Yeah. But the, I, I just, I, and I made my way across because it, it, this is not halfway. So it was, it was it, well, just past us. The, the shortest exit was the other side. Yeah. So I get to the other side. I bet while this is happening, James and another, we had a couple of people riding, supporting the charity, were riding with James. So by this stage, it's taken so long, James had caught up with another guy. And they could, they could see my bike. But it's loud, it's raining, and, it's, and I'm going, and they, I can see them sort of trying to, I'm going, oh, no, because yeah, yeah, I'm trying to like, A, save myself, just told them don't come, because they yeah, don't yeah. know what's just happened. Yeah. So I get to the other side, and then they, they walk nonchalantly, <laughs> closer to, like, to see my bike. They tie themselves to each other with some bungee that they had. Which which could go very badly wrong. Yeah, I don't think they quite realized. <laughs> they, they just thought it was probably sedentary. Yeah. So they walk, yeah. pick, they, they two, those two pick my bike, I get to the other side. Then I told them what happened, and then they, they just go white. Another three of us are stuck on that side of the mud. Their bike's the other side. We've got only got my gear, which now obviously is covered. Most of these things are covered in mud. We've got one passport between us. Um, so, and they're obviously not going to risk going back to get their bike. So we then mm. walk down the hill to this, to the to to the um, the border post, which mm. is now closed. This is far too late. But yeah. James, fortunately, because mm. he had lived in Laos, speaks fluent Lao. So he started chatting to some officials that were, I mean, it's a very remote place. So he explained the situation. I pulled my passport out, which is, you know, so the Vietnam, the Vietnam side is a side to be worried about. Not leaving Laos, you know, I can leave any day. So, but I pulled it out. James explained the situation and they were incredibly helpful. They got hold of their colleagues, I guess, in the Vietnamese side. And there was a lot of wow. backpackers and forwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out the Vietnamese police there, water guards had like a barracks. It was very, very informal. So, that's right. so we, they let us stay at the border post now. James went to go. They let him walk into the nearest town. It's just, I don't know, a few hundred meters to the other side of the, on the Vietnam side. Yeah. Then we bought about a case of theirs. <laughs> they sat in this room and just decompressed, like decompress. Um, and then what? They went back a day or two later to get the bikes? So, yeah. So then, yeah. And obviously, we, you know, it was unpacked that whole. I mean, I still get goosebumps thinking about it. It's incredible. And um, so we just, yeah, we shared the the dryish clothes that were still in my bags that we could and yeah. um, just slept in this very this room. And then the next morning, um, I had to, so Vietnam, they basically, they were, they were flexible. They, they understood the situation, let me in anyway. Mm. Uh, I had another friend joining me in the next town. So I sort of went on my own and then James and this, this guy called Doc 
Um, they walked back up the hill, and yeah, by then it, you know, it'd been partially cleared, and they walked across. And, and then there's other people there. You know, there was, it wasn't just those two who didn't have any, you know, who had no idea what it all, it, what it all transpired. Mm. But that vision, Ross, as that, that surge hits, I remember so, like, there's obviously that natural instinct of trying to save yourself, yes. but it was the most, it was almost serene. Like, I remember so distinctively going, this is sad. It wasn't like, it wasn't a, like a fear. It was like, isn't this sad? Like, we've been through so much. <laughs> and this is how it's going to end. end. And, and I hope James finishes this. I remember so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And I was just like, and, no, mm. and also, this is going to cause so much problems because no one's going to know. There's, no, there's going to be no bike there. There's going to be no sign that I was there. Yeah, you won't know where no one's going to have any idea what happened to me. And you thought all that in that moment. It's just, yeah, it's obviously Imagine happens. how fast your brain processes possibilities yeah, I mean, and I'm scenarios. Just, I think, I'm just, yeah. It was, it, but it, it, but it, I guess it's, in a good way, it's like, it wasn't like, there was no fear of dying. It wasn't like the death didn't fear mm. me. The fall didn't, it wasn't like, oh, yeah, I'm sure it's going to be horrible. But like, it wasn't like, there was no like, oh my God, it's just, it was like, it was sort of just sadness. But I guess it's also like, I don't know if there's, if there's any truth to it, but sort of, I guess it was the elements of like, you know, it's it's much better way to go than if I was, you know, died in a car accident on the way to a job that I hated or something, you know. <laughs> it was like, you know, there was, it was like, you know, um, yeah. you know, I've got, this has been the most wild laugh, the wild last few years. Yeah. And, um, and I, I didn't think this deeply at the time about this, but in hindsight, you think it's like, you're putting yourself in these risky situations and you putting, as you talked about before, I mean, you know, we want to sum up some stats. I've probably done just over 100,000 kilometers now in the mm. last 10 years on these journeys. And just the odds are at some stage. Right. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what the, the actual you've, stats are out there. And, you've obviously had a lot of time on your own cycling. and You must have had considerable time to think about the philosophy of life and the meaning of everything. <laughs> must have changed your perspective on things quite a lot in the last 10 years, yeah? Oh, yeah, more more than you can imagine, Ross. So it's just, I think mm. there's, I mean, I think if I think of thing, I absolutely just love the simplicity of life on the road. Mm. Everything you own, everything is, everything is everything you need is in a couple of bags and panniers on the back of your bike. Uh, the joy that I've experienced the last ten years of the people I've met, it is, it's honestly, it's that money combat. Mm. Even if you won the lottery, you wouldn't be able to have those experiences. It, it's it's. It really, really is just, yeah. I just feel like there's nothing in my life that I could imagine be more rewarding than the than that than mm. the last ten years. And you know, this is I'm putting a hard stake in the ground after this 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 week, this journey. And it's and I made that decision, you know, and after I recovered in, from in Mexico and was feeling good again. I just said, you know what, this is. And talking about thinking about things, like yeah. every time I finish my journeys before, it's always I've never I've never had any certainty. It's always been like. People, the next everyone's quick. Next question is what's next? What's next? What's next? And now it's like it's been very liberating having made the decision now that this is it from that point of view. So at that stage of my life, and I'm and I'm, I could never have that guy I had left ten years ago. If I, if I if I could interview him now and said, "How do you think your life will turn out?" It would. It would. It would I can't imagine. You know, it's just. In, it's succeed, I've just it's inconceivable, to, right? Like you can't just imagine it. And that's why yeah. I've also always had this idea that people say you should have a five-year plan and a ten-year plan. And I've always thought, I never had that in my life. Yeah, and yeah. if you'd asked me five years ago, where would I be? I couldn't, I couldn't have imagined where I would be. 
And sometimes if, if you but can, some, maybe you're shutting, you're shutting off so many yeah, doors exactly. and so many opportunities. Now you pick the path you're going to walk and that means you don't, because by definition you, you've chosen. And you're shutting on every other path. You've chosen every other one, mm. right? There so, are some mm. people though who need that structure in their life. So we are getting somewhat philosophical yeah. here now. But you started that first ride in Africa having planned one day. Yeah. But you still had a vision for what it was going to take and how long it was yeah. going to take and how you needed to structure it overall. But was the specifics were open. Yeah, yeah, the huge, I mean, the huge amount of planning went into it. Like yeah. the most, the biggest thing was around visas. How I was going to organize visas. Yeah, yeah, logistics. Logistics. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, there's a lot of, you know, you, you always overthink these things, but the equipment you need, the clothing yeah, I mean, you need. To, to the day in the case of Vietnam, you just told us a story. You, that was literally had to be planned to the day. Yeah, they're, they're, so yeah, so there's, yeah, and there's so like there's elements, a lot of specifics. You do make commitment, and then you make, you know, I'm, you know, this is a fundraiser, you make commitments to people along the way, just do a fundraising dinner in New York mm. on that date, or, you know, mm. just cycled 300Ks with 180 people from Twickenham. You know, couldn't be late for that, for it's example. You know, on this podcast, we interviewed, probably remember, we interviewed a guy called Richie, who was a Marine. Yes, I do remember. And he said one of the things they teach them deliberately is to never be flexible and to always be comfortable with sudden changes in the plan. And so they'll deliberately expose them to situations where they'll tell them one thing and everyone creates an expectation and they'll do something un- Completely, un- yeah. un- unplanned and surprising yeah. because they want to disrupt your ability to be comfortable. Yeah. You've basically put, imposed that yeah. on yourself. Yes, yeah, uh, exactly. For 10 yeah. years. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah, so you have a, yeah, yeah, we are getting philosophical. But yeah, it's a, yeah, sort of have, I mean, uh, yeah, I've got a start point, I've got an end point. And I put as much, I've planned and controlled as much as I can. Mm. And then you just have to, yeah, then it's just about adapting as you go. Tony and there goes curveball after curveball yeah. after curveball. Because you know David Epstein, you know yes. the name? Yes, yeah. He, he writes a newsletter. And in fact, yesterday his newsletter was on this exact thing. And he spoke about the World Athletics Champs and how the athletes go to these big championships like the World Athletics Champs and the Olympics. And they're often thrown by the fact that they've got a plan that then can't be realized and they fail because of their own expectations. So give me an example. In this piece, he talks about the sprinter from England called Dina Asher-Smith. Okay. She talks about how you know, in England they call Sod's Law, whatever can go yeah. wrong will go wrong. Yeah. And if you go in there with a fixed mindset about how things are going to be, you are pretty much permanently going to be frustrated and anxious yeah. and panicking. And then you're going to find yourself stuck in a warm-up area for longer than you thought. Yeah. You're going to be in a holding room for longer yeah. than you thought. And everything's disrupted. And your ability to be agile in your, in your actions within an overall principle of performance was the, the point he was making. Yeah. And I think that's what you learned. I guess it's like it's, you know, if you're a golfer and you, you know your tee time and you know what time you want to arrive at the golf course to, mm. you know, in a major championship, whatever, and there's traffic and you get stuck and all of a sudden you arrive at the golf course and yeah. you, you, your whole warm-up routine's gone out the window. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think for, it's, but I think it's, it's such a true thing for anything in life, you know, yeah, exactly. whether it's either you're running a business or mm. even if you're a school teacher or whatever you're doing in life, um, yeah, if you, if you can't adapt, um, to sudden surprises or sudden change, right, it's a very anxious way to live, basically. You always, always say to athletes, control the controllables. Yeah. I've, I mean, but, I have, like sometimes athletes wrongly identify what's controllable. So I've done, actually been doing a lot of reading and listening. So the one thing I've been reading a lot about is stoicism on oh, this yeah. trip as well. And that's what exactly, that's all, basically yeah. all comes down to yeah. that really is just kind of like, you can't control the weather, you control the yeah. clothes you've got. Yes. Basically. <laughs> and, um, so yeah, and it's, 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 you know, it's, it, it yeah. And I guess even consciously or subconsciously, that's become the way I've lived my life for the last mm. 10 years. And that's, 
why, Ross, like it's, if I was 49, I've just turned 49, if I was 49 years of age, with no house, no job, no prospects, no, you know, money or wealth or whatever, and I hadn't had these last 10 years, so if I was in this situation and hadn't had these previous 10 years of my life, I think I'd be in a pretty dark place. Yeah. But I'm so excited for what, what lies ahead. And part of that is because I have no idea what it's going to be. Right. I know what it's not going to be is spending years cycling around the world. A lot of people listening to this would not have an idea of what's coming next and they wouldn't be excited. They'd be terrified. They'd yeah. anxious. But I'm, I've, I, I think, so can we talk stats quickly? Yeah, yeah, please. Well, okay, no, no. Just, so I'll just, uh, just to sum it up, like, so the last 10 years, 100,000 kilometers, about, I haven't done the final numbers, somewhere around 112, 115 countries. Um, and it's all six continents. Okay, mm. sorry, Antarctica, I'll get there for a trip one day. But all six, mm. you know, proper continent, <laughs> proper continent. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've met, I don't know how many tens of thousands of people. And there is just like, what is, po- <laughs> what, what basically it's just showing me what is possible in mm. terms of like the way people live their lives the jobs that they do, the careers that they've got, the businesses they've run. And it's just like, like this is this next period of my life, I want to do something different. I want to do something. Mm. And just, and it's exciting to know that there's something, maybe I want to become a teacher. I'm going to become a teacher or become a plumber. Or, you know, something, it sounds random, but to, like what an opportunity to be able to start life with a clean slate mm. um, and to do something that I haven't yet found, you know, I haven't yet mm. discovered. And that, and that, you know, if it's half as good as the last 10 years, yeah. that's an exciting adventure in its own right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to not get, cover the other two cycling trips okay. because it's almost like this, this would be an appropriate place to end, but I can't because we're only halfway. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I, I can do the short version. <laughs> no, 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 no. Let's, let's, let's talk about, about it. So you, you deliver the whistle in Tokyo. Yeah, deliver the whistle in Tokyo. We win that tournament. So yeah, so it ended a bit better. That's a solid yeah. after the previous one. Yeah. And then... Your next one is Tokyo to New Zealand. New Zealand. Yep. That's so, where the Women's World Cup's going to happen. But did, was that was that inevitable? Did you know that was going to happen as you were heading into Tokyo, or did it come up afterwards? Because COVID obviously messed that plan up if it was made. Yeah. So my yeah. So I got to uh, arrived in Tokyo. James and I arrived there. We presented the the whistle to Nigel Owens. Was ref the, the massive opening game between Russia and Japan. Yeah. And. Um, and uh, did a bit of whistle. We raised about $135,000 for child phone rugby. So, I mean, it was, from my point of view, an incredible success. So, dreams mm-hmm. up this, you know, and I lo- it's, there's a sense of satisfaction. You put, put this big project together. You got this time, there's more stakeholders and sponsors involved. We pulled it off, survived. <laughs> um, I picked up some other, survived the landslide, and I picked up this illness. Uh, it's called wheels disease or wheels. It's, it comes from rats' weeds. So it's not the most. <laughs> anyway, it's a long, it's a, anyway, so I got pretty sick. And got through that, and um, we can probably talk about that as well. But um, anyway, I got to Tokyo, and it was like, okay, we've pulled off something pretty pretty special here. Um, so I guess I hadn't made any decisions at that stage about whether I was going to do it again or whether I'd have the appetite to do it again. Um, but during that tournament, um, somebody offered us, kindly offered us, sponsored us in Cape Epic entry. Um, Absolutely, Cape Epic, a big mountain bike race in South yeah. Africa, mm-hmm. we all know about. And James had never been, my riding partner had never been to South Africa. He had never heard of the race. But I said to him, this is a valuable ticket, <laughs> not just financially, but they're hard mm-hmm. to get. Um, why don't you and I, let's go and do this race. And let's come, come, come and spend some time in South Africa. Um, I actually rent a little cottage in the Natal Midlands, a place called Nottingham Roads. So I love that part of the world. Rent a little cottage. And I kind of use him as an excuse to get around the country. Also just to catch up with mates of mine, see what was going on on the ground, see if something came up. Uh, while we entered a couple of races and, and then obviously as we know 
uh, COVID suddenly landed on our doorstep. The race was cancelled like 36 hours notice. Mm. Um, so I ended up in that cottage in the Midlands for two years. So it was the best place to see out COVID. I actually had the property was actually on a little yeah yeah, I was on a little small holding so I had I mean my garden was a forest so I could drive my bike and and go for walks and things but anyway and then during that period obviously you start and I had a really good 2020 look ahead of me you know in terms of I had a lot of corporate speaking stuff Mm. on the cards Mm. Um, so it was looking like a good year from that point of view and obviously all that evaporated overnight and did one or two zoom talks and things like that and I think you know it's probably it's not the same Um, you can't charge the same either. So anyway, it was a pretty, but then, so I had a lot of time to think of projects, different projects. Yeah. I tried to put together one project optimistically in 2021, um, to cycle from the lowest point in Africa to the highest. Yeah. Yeah. That's Ethiopia. It's Eritrea or Ethiopia? Uh, Djibouti. It's a oh, place called yeah, Lake Assault. Eastern Horn there. I remember that bit. And then up to Kili. Up yeah. to the top of Kili. So that's mm. a project. Um, yeah, that's the sort of project I might do in the future. You know, you could probably do it in 30 days. It'd be a nice little short term mm. thing. But, um, anyway, and then, um, and then I started. You know, then I was like, and then I started chatting to World Rugby and just talk, talk about. It. And, then, and then my initial idea was to do the two continents that were missing with Americas on my sort of cycling CV for if you want, and Oceania. Yeah, yeah. So I was I started plotting a route from Japan down to New Zealand, then across to South America, up South America, across which to, is yeah, yeah, which, which is, you then got to do. In two World Cup yeah, trips. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then Perfect. the Women's World Cup Perfect. got delayed by a thing. Yeah. Uh, child yeah. fund with the official charity of the Women's World Cup. DHL, yeah. one of the sponsors of that tournament. So I've kind of a cookie, you know, cut, cut and paste what we did in 2019. And then I wrote yeah. to a different different guy and the two of us cycled, went back to Tokyo. I mean, this was, and Jap- Japan was very conservative with reopening. So this was March 2022. Yes. Uh, we were, we basically got September. the first visas and then the World Cup in September. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Adam and I cycled from Japan. It was a bit disrupted. We couldn't get into China because of COVID. So we had to fly to Vietnam. Cycled Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, Malaysia, uh, into Singapore. And Ireland hopped Indonesia all the way to East Timor. Mm-hmm. Hopped across to Darwin. So mm-hmm. I spent about six or seven weeks cycling from Darwin to Sydney. Across the outback, then along the coast. Pretty amazing. Up the length of New Zealand um, for the women's game. Uh, women's Rugby World Cup, which was actually which was an unbelievable tournament. Yeah, it, it seems the way they've put it together, the triple headers and some. The triple headers, mm. but all, and the way that the New Zealand public got behind it, the atmosphere, some of the rugby was at the, 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 on the top games was mm. absolutely fantastic. Mm. I watched the World Cup final, um, England, New Zealand, England, firm favourites. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, and there was a lot of discussion with some really heavyweight rugby people <laughs> in the, in the hospitality suite that evening after the game. Admittedly, in the, in the you know in the midst of the excitement of it all, about whether that was actually the best World Cup final ever. Yeah, yeah, from a rugby yeah. point of view. Basically, decided on a lineout steal five minutes from the line. With Correct. Time gone. Exactly right. Yeah. So it had everything. It had all the drama. It was end to end. A lot of tries. Mm. And um, yeah, and then got presented the referee, the whistle for the opening game of 2023 World Cup, which is tonight. And you left literally like the day after. Yep. The final was on a Saturday. I left the Sunday. Yeah. Cycled to the airport, flew to Santiago, Chile. Um, you want to talk about amazing rides and then cycle straight up over the Andes. So you fly, you come out of Santiago, Santiago, uh, camped one night, second day you start climbing, and then the third day you go up this road. I think it's like 35 switchbacks. They actually number them. And you look up ahead of you and it's just this wall of mountain. And you can see the switchback. You see the trucks sort of snaking their way up oh, the mountain. Wow. Um, so that's, if you want to talk about just, it's only, I mean, only goes up to about 3,000 meters, but it's just mm-hmm. absolutely beautiful. I mean, it's a, Beautifully paved road. It's got to be one of the most iconic road cycles you can possibly imagine. And you drop down the other side to Mendoza. And so yeah. across Argentina uh, into Uruguay. So the first four countries of this trip were all participating nations of the World Cup. So mm-hmm. you know, New Zealand, Chile, 
Argentina, Uruguay, Chile yeah. playing in their first World Cup. That's right. Um, their qualification means for the first time ever there's no North Re- North American representation in the tournament. Um, mm. And then made my way through yeah, Central America, into the US, up the East Coast to, to New York, then flew to Dublin, and then to go and see all the, all the rugby city, you know, five participating nations. Yes. So Edinburgh, sorry, Dublin to Edinburgh, down to Cardiff. Well, I was lucky enough to arrive on the day South Africa played Wales. Timed that nicely. Nice. A couple of weeks ago as a warm up. Oh, that was the warm up fixture. That's right, yeah. Um, then I cycled up to rugby. That's the 200th anniversary of the sport, so I thought it would be appropriate to go and visit the place where it started. Okay, it's all fallen into place, huh? Yeah, and then I, then I finished, yeah, a day and a half later, arrived at Twickenham on the Thursday, yeah. and Friday we played the All Blacks <laughs> in what has turned out to be All Blacks' biggest defeat ever. So, <laughs> in a so that was a. So I, hope your, I hope your streak continues. And that wasn't yeah. the peak of it. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's, oh, we, <laughs> that, that's, would, that would be the concern, is once you play that well, where do you go from there? Well, that's, that is my concern. And I, I don't, <laughs> try not to jump on the bandwagon that we're in our yeah, favourites. So I want to go right. in as... I'd rather, I'd rather be nervous than hopeful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we've got to, got to get past Scotland on Sunday. But anyway, yeah, and then um, spent 10 days in London, basically putting the final pieces together for, we had 100, can yeah, you believe yeah. 180 people, or if you let us into Twickenham, to part of the Twickenham Stadium. Um, and for a lot of people, it's the hardest thing they've ever done in their life. And there's the amount of grit and determination that you see from people, yeah, it's yeah, pretty inspiring. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then we got to cycle into Paris yesterday under sort of fully supported police escort through the streets of Paris, which I think only happens the Tour de France. Yeah, twice a year maybe. Yeah. The women do it and the men. Yeah, and yeah. I think there's, and Hot Chili, the, who organized the event, they get, they've somehow got these connections. They do, they do right. another London to Paris once a year away. So it's very, very massive privilege. And, you know, obviously I enjoy my cycling and I still get, it's weird, I still get it. When people say, oh, this is Ron, he's a cyclist. I still find it hot. I still think it's myself as a, like a, I still think of myself as a rugby player who cycles. Right. Like I don't, I, you know, cyclists, yeah. I took rugby seriously. And, and cycling is basically anything I can do, you know. So I just enjoy, you know, so it's, it's weird. Like, but I'm a keen fan of the cycling and the sport. Mm. But mm. Um, yeah, so when we arrived at, you know, Paris last night. Mm. So I lost my train of thought. I apologize. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Uh, so have I to some extent. In, the, in these four trips then, where in that sequence where you at your fittest, do you think? What's the physical pinnacle that you've reached in the last decade? Oh, very. I would say. So I spoke earlier about that month I took off, or four weeks I took from Mexico City. I would say a week or two after that, and despite being ten years older than when I started, I mean, and also there's the recency effect of remembering this most recently. It was. I mean, I was in Texas. It's blisteringly hot. In, uh, in this is now like June, and mm. um, there's like, like the, some sort of heat dome they talked about, and it was like all these weather warnings. I mean, it's, it's just furnace-like conditions, but I don't think I've ever felt, I can't remember anyway, ever feeling stronger on a bike. It's interesting um, that it took that layoff. Yeah, yeah. Because it, that would suggest to me that you're probably overtrained for about five years <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> because the first trip you started as you said completely unfit because of a wrist injury that kept you from yeah. training the second trip you would have started relatively unfit because of a hip yeah. replacement right. yeah I was very very unfit yeah. third trip maybe down to New Zealand COVID maybe you were moderately trained yeah I was, I was ticking over this last one yeah. you would have started in New Zealand fairly strong Yes, I, yeah, I had a month off the World Cup yeah. um, so there was certainly no calorie deficit for that month yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then yeah, so it almost, it's almost like that idea that you load the system so much, but it's not until you recover that you realize the benefits of that load. 
and you needed that yeah. recovery in Mexico, and then suddenly you realized all that food gain. I must say, it's interesting you said, and I, you think yeah. of, I actually, you've prompted me to think, I must say that first few weeks in South America, I was also feeling really good. Off New Zealand. Off New Zealand, It's because yeah. you've got such a base. I mean, yeah. like, I don't know if there'd be a human being with a base you've got. Yeah. Life. <laughs> right now. Yeah, probably, yeah. You know what I mean? And then, and then a bit of a recovery and a break. And then you just got to reload that system, and now you. But it's interesting. I mean, I'd ask you, like, so yeah, so now I've pretty much got a really acceptable base at the moment. But it, it obviously depends how you define fitness. But if I tried to go right, and do right, a pull-up now, I'd, I wouldn't be, wouldn't be able to do one pull-up. Yeah, sure, um, sure. And you know, if you told me to go and play a game of touch rugby, I'm sure I'd pull a hammy or I'd be out of breath in, in, within seconds, or play a game of squash or something. So uh, I guess, but from a base point of view, from an endurance point of view, mm. yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, it's. I mean, I, I want to go do the manga next week or something, you know, <laughs> something like that, you know. Because yeah. uh, you, you're basically physiologically, you've, you've proven yourself to be physiologically unstoppable at the yeah. right intensity. Yeah. You can just do, you can just go and go and go. I mean, you, you, I could certainly, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that, so that, for example, that 33 days we did across Europe, I mean, we, I think we had one, I mean, I haven't done all the, I mean, I'm looking at the stats, but it's pretty rare that I would do two weeks without a day off. Yeah. Just yeah, yeah just yeah, statistically. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I feel that, yeah. I mean, I could literally, I could probably, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I could ride every day, hundred k's. Mm. You know, at that sort of intensity, I kind of, you know, without needing mm. a break. Mm. Mm. I'm sure there'd be a time that you would break down <laughs> eventually, but yeah. you hadn't reached that point yet. Or maybe you did towards this last one when you got to Costa Rica. You know, you might have been so suppressed, immune function down, just tired. But I think it must be you, a lot of mental fatigue as well. Yeah, and this this trip in particular didn't have a sponsor for this last leg. Yeah, uh, my riding partner Adam, who was rode with me from London to Japan, sorry from Japan to New Zealand, he was supposed to ride this leg, but without a sponsor, yeah. it wasn't possible for him. So, so I was kind of throwing that curveball, and now being on my own, um, mm. without a sponsor, you know, there's a fundraising which was all I was all stacked, and I was putting all my cards in this last 180 day, 180 day ride. So. I was pretty much, like in the middle of South America. There was times I was going like, "This is unbelievable." Mm. Like no one cares. Like it's just like a, it's not that I, you know, I don't do it. You know, it's just like sometimes you go like, "Why am I pro-? like, you know, why am I beating myself? Like why am I just pushing, pushing so hard?" Mm. No one like if I jumped on a train tomorrow, no one cares. It's like, oh, yeah, but it's weird. So, but it's, I think it was a bit of I was just a bit of like a bit of frustration at, at the situation and financial stress. It was like little things. So there's, mm. there's that sort mm. of challenge. But I, knew, I mean, I knew I'd forget. But like, that too will pass. Right, so, right, Because yeah. I know, all the times I've had, when I've had slumps and I've been, you know, been unwell or, and the highs, you know, you're on a high and then, you know, there's times when you, beautiful day, the next thing, an unexpected rainstorm comes and you're drenched, you're cold. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know what, you wake up the next day and eventually you dry out and eventually you another good day. So, so there, yeah, so mental fatigue. It's and this this trip now. I've been planning. It's just 180 people. I've basically put that whole thing together on, from the back of my bike over the last year. It's yeah. pretty exhausting itself. And so. and so you've already centered at what you'll do next, which is nothing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that's probably not going to be the case. But what about you thought about doing guided trips? Yeah. So that's yeah. So this is. And would you want to do that? So do you think it would take away the appeal for you? So be I think, responsible for other people. Well, the last three days has been exactly that. I've right. actually guided 180 people, and yeah. it is mentally exhausting. Yeah. It is, especially yeah. a group that size. Yeah. But, but like, just the somebody said to me yesterday, they have not seen so much laughter mm. for a three-day period ever, basically. Mm. And so the like, just being surrounded by people that are doing something that's out of their comfort zone for most people, um, and that shared spirit, that shared camaraderie, it is worth it for me. 
like despite all the stresses right. that it causes, I'm a really a perfectionist wanting to make sure everything's perfect so I get annoyed so, when things don't work out. So here's a thought. If I said, okay, we're going to do a science of sport guided tour with Ron Ratland through, because you sold it to me last night and today, South America. Yeah. And it was going to be 21 days. And you said to you, like, you'd put a package together and you'd say, okay, we're going to cap it at 15 people. Yeah. To make it logistically manageable for you. Yeah. Is that the kind of thing you would then entertain? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. That would be cool, eh? Yeah, that would be very cool. Yeah. Is it a, are, we, are we planting seeds here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm definitely like. Well, I think, well, here's. the first time I've planted a seed and then failed to water it because <laughs> I have more ideas than I have time. Oh, I've, money, got, a, I've got an ideas folder on my laptop, which is <laughs> uh, you couldn't you couldn't do all those in a life in three lifetimes. So. Yeah, yeah. But I, yeah, so I mean, short even even Africa. You said to me Uganda and Burundi. Was it Burundi or Rwanda? You said Rwanda. Rwanda. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, I mean, we'll put this out there as well. Like, I, I think Africa lowest to highest. It hasn't been done on a bicycle. It hasn't been done. I don't think any any form. So mm. that would take probably thirty days. Probably be an ideal number would be around 15, 16 mm. people. And yeah, 3,000 k's or so of cycling from out of from Djibouti through Ethiopia, length of Kenya and across the border. Mm. Um, and up, as you, know, as you know now, people do cycle up Kili, so that that's possible. And you have a glorious. How, how can you get up Kili on a bike? Up to, okay, like I mean, without pushing it. Up to the last day, then it's hike a bike to the top. Yes, yeah, because is, that was, that's, my, that's my altitude experience. And we were doing like 2Ks an hour walking. Yes, well, yeah. I couldn't believe it. I remember one time I was at the sort of, I was in the group and we were on the last stretch from the base camp up to the lip. And I had to go off for a little bathroom break. And so I lost over those two minutes, I lost about 50 meters because you're literally going 20 meters a minute. It's unbelievable. Yeah. You couldn't walk that slowly if you tried. Yeah, yeah. And then to catch up, I had to walk a little faster for two minutes. I got to the back of the, the peloton, as yeah. it were. Yeah. And I was, I felt like I'd done an 800 meter race. That's I was absolutely gassed. So it took me about forty-five minutes to recover. So that's, I find that uh, it's so weird, Ross. I don't. Like, I, 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 I haven't done Kelly, and I, that sounds like the experience of that's everyone's experience. Mm. So it still doesn't compute to me. Like the cycling, up, like yeah, the Andes, really like it's the same altitude. It's the same. And that's why I wish we'd measured it because when I did Kelly with the with the guys, and you know all the guys, yeah. One of my things was we measured oxygen saturations, yeah. the finger or the earlobe yeah. finger. And you could predict after three days out of five climbing who was struggling and who wasn't because based on that, yeah, because it drops overnight, and then you know that person's going to be in trouble. Because what, what does it drop down to? Do you, uh, you know Headley. Yes. Yeah, Headley that Matterons and mine now. Uh, he got into the low seventies waking wow. up. Now most people would finish the day's walking, say like the sort of seven eight hours. You'd get to base camp. We do that assessment at night. Most people would be, let's say, 80-something, but Excuse by the me, next... Do you want to interrupt? I just want to say good morning to the legend. Yeah. Thanks for recording something. No, don't apologize. Just just, one of Ron's fans has just come over to say, oh. to say how's it? No, and, no worries. And no. great friends. Yeah. Thanks ah, for still out of it. I forget your name, Patrick. He's got another Kiwi fan here. It's a problem with being with a celebrity. Um, what was I saying? Uh... Yeah, so we'd measure that. We'd measure the sats as we got to camp, and, and yeah, most of the time they dropped into the low eighties. Okay. But then most people overnight would get back into the low nineties. So what are we at the moment? Would you say ninety-eight, ninety-nine? Okay. Yeah, yeah, you'd be worried if you weren't. Okay. And then, and then, as you go higher and higher, obviously the next morning it's going to be lower. But most people were even at base camp; they were in the low eighties. But but when Hedley, you start getting worried. Yeah, Hedley's the moment it's not recovering overnight. Okay, yeah. And that's that thing that you said where you'd, some people just don't have the sensitivity to altitude enough to, to hyperventilate. Okay, yeah. And then they don't breathe enough, and that's why they drop. 
overnight. Oh, right. When right, you say, right. okay, we've got to keep an eye on that because that's actually trending in the wrong direction. Oh, right. And, it was, and sure enough, when we got to the, the everyone made it. He yeah. made it. But of, of, of the group, he was the one who was affected the most by it. And you could yeah. predict it three days before. It's really interesting. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, it really is interesting. And it's just, it's just the, it just shows it, it's not, there's no correlation to fitness. There's no, like, as you would mm. traditionally think, you know, you, no. you have, you know, no. old heavy smokers who don't have a problem and you feel. And that's it, why it would be so interesting. And that's why if we did, if we did ever water the seed that I planted about going to yeah. South America or even this lowest or highest yeah. African one, you take, you tell those 15 people, one of the deals is you're going to be research participants yeah. in a study. And we're actually going to call this a study in how you adapt. Like, for instance, it would be fascinating to me to measure your mitochondrial mass because yeah. that's the little guy in the cell yeah, that yeah. contains all those enzymes that produce energy for you. And we know that one of the adaptations in endurance athletes is more mitochondria. Imagine Ron Ratland on day zero of that trip in 2013. Yeah. It's Ron Ratland in Texas in 2023. Yeah. That comparison, the 10-year evolution of a... Even though you've aged 10 years, yeah, there's yeah. a natural decline. Yeah, so what, what's happening there? And between trips, how much does it return to baseline or do you get some sort of like resilience in that? And easier to get it back when you restart. All those things, fascinating. Yeah. Right? But, but yeah, I wish I'd had oxygen sets on you in there. Yeah. It could have been really fascinating. A uh, couple quick fire questions because yes. you've been more than generous yeah. with your time and I've been more than greedy with, with no, it. No. Uh, how many punctures? Did you have dozens? Well, in the last, this is, is, let's just look not at the hundreds, last, not hundreds over the 10 years, hundreds, but I'd yeah. say the last, this last, if we look at the yeah. last year, dozens. Yeah. And when you have mechanical, like a bike covered in mud, yeah, what was the procedure to replace parts and so on? Is that difficult? It, it so depends where you are, and yeah. um, you know, I've been, yeah, I've always got the. I'm giving you a non-straightforward answer. You just, you, oh, I'm not a mechanically minded person, yeah. but I just always, you always make a plan. Like I've we got spare brake pads, I've got... There are people who won't get through Epic with yes. a bit of mud in the derailleur and they're done. Yeah, <laughs> I just, I guess, just, I've just taught myself over the years. Okay. I've solved most problems. Right. I've never not been able to get to, I mean, I remember times in Africa, there's some, you get to some bush mechanic and he pulls out a you know, hammer and a chisel and he starts bashing away on things. Right. To try. So I've always managed to make temporary fixes at least. Yeah. Okay. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I had another question I was going to ask you, but I don't remember it now. Perhaps that's a good time to. I think South Africa is going to, within a good chance of winning, but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the question. <laughs> it might have been. Yeah. <laughs> it may have been indeed. Yeah. Listen, Ron, uh, it's been much more, much longer than I think you even bargained for, but that's because. And, and we haven't touched the surface. <laughs> I feel like we could carry on again. No, no, yeah. I mean, we definitely could, but I'm not going to put that on you. Uh, I know you're going to the game tonight. Can't wait. Okay. 80,000 people start to France. I can't wait for that anthem. Yeah, me neither. And I can't wait to see the reaction to the haka as well from yes, the fans. Yes. That's going to be pretty special. They, they, I think they'll sing the... They're going to they sing they the anthem. They don't have a sweet chariot. Will they sing the anthem? They'll sing the anthem. It's fine tingling stuff. Just yeah, thinking about me I'm too. really looking forward to that. And then you're spending some time in France recovering down in the south and you'll be here hopefully till the final to watch us win it. <laughs> yeah, I'll be here to the final and yeah. And I'm a rugby fan, so yeah, I'm pragmatic and uh, yeah, I'm not gonna let it if we get knocked out I'll be disappointed, but I'm not gonna let it spoil my party. Okay, listen. Okay, thank you so Awesome, sir. thanks Ross. And well done. Thanks, my brother. Thanks for it. sharing your story. I know that for listeners has been a little bit different to normal, I think, but uh, We'll do something in the studio when I'm back in Cape Town. I, and I, I, I genuinely want to make a trip happen with you and get yeah. some listeners to come along and, 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 and yeah, it'd be amazing. So I've got, yeah, we could have a million ideas. We'll, we'll narrow it down. Okay, we'll pick one. Offer it to our patrons and see what they think. Oh, can do a poll. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, and thanks for, for listening, everyone. Bye-bye.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 